Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. Hi, it's Jay Mueller from the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Before this encore edition of The Final Word, we want to congratulate Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for 1 million downloads. The Final Word joined the Bad Producer Podcast Network a little more than a year ago, and a million downloads in that time is fantastic. Wouldn't have been possible without the incredible effort from Adam and Jeff or from everyone like you listening. Thank you. It's a privilege to play a part in this, and we're looking forward to the next million. The Bad Producer Podcast Network is home to the best podcasts in the arts, sports, and comedy. Our newest comedy podcast is with comedian Ross Noble, simply called Ross Noble Podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd love it if you check it out. That's enough from me. Now, here's Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word cricket podcast encore edition. Adam Collins with you, Jeff Lemon as well. And we are rebooting for you today for your weekend lockdown. Listen, a conversation that we had with uh, broadcaster and former England international Jeff Isha Guhar, a chat we had uh, at the start of 2019 at Adelaide Oval. And it was a most fulfilling conversation then. And I'm, I'm glad we're rebadging it this week. I think Isha Guhar is probably my favourite person whose name is done with in the space of seven letters. You know, it's a very efficient name. (laughs) If you want to sign a lot of things, it's a good name to have. Uh, But she was great to talk to at the time because she was becoming very well known in Australia as this broadcaster helming the cable TV coverage and uh, and being being the host I suppose you know having to to, to be gracious under fire and, and to be able to be the link between all sorts of um, different interviews and back to the studio and so on and what was lost in that was the fact that she was an extremely accomplished international cricketer herself and then even if you know that story you don't necessarily know about the academic side of her life the fascinating family background all of the cultural aspects of the way that she grew up and and got into an England cricket program so there was a huge amount of depth that we got into with her about the person to give you an idea of who the person is behind who you see on the screen and she was very gracious with opening up to that conversation and and answering the questions and coming up with plenty more thoughts of her own. Yeah, she's lots of fun, Isha, and I think partly because of the way she came into this. Like, yeah, she's a high-profile broadcaster now, but having uh, made her, her path to that via women's cricket when it wasn't high-profile, like she hasn't got this massive ego, uh, which I really admire. You could easily imagine that someone with her profile would would strut about thinking they own the joint, but she definitely doesn't. She's humble. She's a great mate of ours as well. The way she sort of um, doesn't sort of lose those links. Uh, back to the women's game, of course. I mean, she's obviously commentating a lot of women's cricket, but now she's a, equally a high-profile broadcaster on the men's game. So that's brilliant. And also, as you say, we, we were able to get into her family history, uh, you know, the fact that she's done a doctorate. I mean, not many uh, people in, inside the cricket uh, tent, if you like, have, uh, mm. 
have uh, studied uh, to the extent to which they've received a, a doctorate, which she did and had that option to study and work in that field, but elected to stay in cricket. So it's a great story, uh, Isha's, and, and yeah, it was great to spend, I think, the better part of an hour and a half with her at Adelaide last year and, and uh, to bring that to you again today. Could we add um, at some point? Like I, I, know, I know we're thinking about what we're doing with the podcast, what the future of it is, big blue sky thinking. Could we at some point get, say, Dr. Ishigua, maybe Dr. Peter Larkin's maybe Dr. Turf? <laughs> Could we get them all together? Some sort of doctor off. Obviously, Dr. Peter Brookner we had on the show pretty recently as well. Could we, we have, have a doc yeah, off? Yeah, yeah. Well, we... we uh, well, we, we've had Dr. Peter Brookner on the show recently. I interviewed Dr. Peter Larkins uh, mm-hmm. in my piece about John Walker in 1977. Yep. Gee, Doc Larkins was one of the, the runners in, in that race during the centenary test match. And uh, and Dr. Turf, I interviewed down at Warrnambool five years ago during the uh, the the, uh, the, uh, the winter races down there when I was doing a feature, yep. a travel feature, actually, about Warrnambool. Dr. Turf gave me some of his time. So I feel like knowing all of these people, mm. we can thread them together in, in one long special edition of The Final Word. Who's to know? As you say, Jeff, we have that freedom. Nobody controls what we do on this podcast these days. I had a former housemate who used to perform uh, singer-songwriter stuff on piano under the name of Dr Shush, uh, so we could get Dr Shush involved. I definitely still got him on Facebook. Um, There's no end to the amount of doctors we can have on the show. Yeah, I wonder how many... I mean, Dr Grace, of course, is the most famous cricketing Mm. doctor, but I wonder how many other medical doctors have have been around, if you you can think of any, uh, who've played perhaps international cricket in the last 20 or 30 years, maybe even longer than that, drop us a line on Twitter or on Patreon, Jeff. And that's what we're about to come to now, of course, because it is time for... Nerd Pledge! The game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our Patreon page who help keep the show afloat by sending us an amount of dollars and cents that correlate to a cricketing number and we have to work out what it is. That's the game. People play it. A few people who played it last week, we heard from Dave Brown, who we discussed his number relating to Peter George. It was four something. What was it, Adam? Four sixteen. Four sixteen. Four four dollars sixteen being the four sixteen being the cap number of Peter George. Uh, Dave Brown, a proud South Australian. We also heard back from Anthony Bianak. We we had all kinds of theories for the one eighty four that he sent through. All kinds of things, but he, he's informed us that in fact it was the one hundred and eighty four made by the Australian women's team in the T Twenty World Cup final. Uh, recently, pretty much the last game of international cricket we saw. Yeah, I, I wrote back to him and said that often with Nerd Pledge we get nice and deep and we do some research and so on. It ends up being the most obvious answer that we yeah. forget. And of course, Jeff, you were there uh, for that game. I'm glad we did the research on 184. I'll, I'll wheel at it again somewhere mm. at some time, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, um, thanks to Anthony and thank you to Dave for getting back in touch with us. Jeff, um, to start today, before we do some new numbers, we're going to cover off some of our non-nerds. Perhaps explain what that means. Yes, the uh, the, the Julios, if you will, of the Nerd Pledge world. Uh, the people who come in and say, I don't have time for number games. Just going just gonna to go straight out and give a straight round number we appreciate them and we like to uh, interpret their lives and try to imagine who these people might be or something about them trent grimes sent us a pledge i I think trent grimes would have had a pretty shocking last few weeks because elon musk the baby grimes obviously there are going to be a lot of people making jokes uh, to poor old trent wherever he goes Uh, probably putting on very bad south african accents and saying grimes grimes my love my wife uh uh, this is my son trent spelt t r epsilon b29 and uh, i'm sure that's been happening just endlessly um do you think elon musk's favorite batsman is kepler vessels i think so (laughs) 
Our next Julio is Hugh McNaughton. Uh, well, I, I know Hugh to the extent to which we back and forth on Twitter, and he told me the other day uh, when I shaved my beard off, which was mm. an impulse move. I didn't tell Rach I was doing that, and I was a bit worried that Winnie wouldn't recognise me after I got rid of it because it was quite Viking-esque by the end. But uh, mm. uh, he told me that it took five years off my life, in the positive way, not five <laughs> years at the other end, but it made me look five years younger. <laughs> <laughs> Made me look five years younger for having um, having taken the razor to my scruffy face. So um, thank you to Hugh for that observation and, and thank you for your contribution. Yeah, I've shaved a couple of times in the last 10 years and it is truly terrifying every time because I still look about 12 without a beard. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter how many of the years go by. Jonathan Amos has signed up. I, I love the name of Amos because it's, it's pronounced Amos, but it's spelt A-M-I-S-S. So it's definitely the word amiss, uh, as if Jonathan Amiss you know, Jonathan, something is wrong. And I like the idea that Jonathan Amiss is a sort of troublemaker, a kind of low-key figure who, wherever he goes, you know, teacups fall off the edge of tables and smash on the floor or people's keys snap off in the front door and they can't get in and they go, ah, Jonathan Amiss has been here. Very good. Perhaps a relative of Dennis Amos as well. Uh, our next Julio is James Davidson, who I had pegged as potentially a, a nephew of the great Alan Davidson. People often talk about Keith Miller being Australia's greatest all-rounder, but I think Davo's got a, a claim for that as well. You look at his numbers, they stack up with everyone's. But, yeah, but did he make a pithy line about Messerschmitt's uh, that, was, that was crude and saucy? <laughs> I don't know if he did, and that's what gets you over the line. Bryant Howie has joined up, uh, of course, the original author of the Howie Games, a dystopian YA series of novels in which about 24 Mark Howards are dropped onto an island and they have to murder each other so that only one Mark Howard will emerge the winner. Just a little uh, a little entry to your to your subconscious there, Jeff. And also Amelia, it must be Amelia Kerr. So Amelia Kerr, welcome uh, to the final word. We're, we're thrilled to have the New Zealand all-rounder, leg spinner, youngster, superstar <laughs> on board with us. And Amelia Kerr's been on Nerd Pledge a bunch of times in terms of the numbers that she's racked up. Um, the current mm. holder of the highest ODI score in the women's game. And, and our last one is Graham Mackay, who's spelt in the slasher Mackay mould, so I'm going to go with that pronunciation. But I'm just imagining the trials of going through life being a Mackay or a Mackay or a Mackie because everyone would always get it wrong. It doesn't matter which kind you are. It's always mm. going to be, you know, poor old Clint, poor old slasher, poor old... Wasn't there a Mackay who played for Carlton at... Andrew on the halfback flank or something yeah yeah. they're they're all over the shop but no one can ever get it right yeah that's right so uh, okay well we've got there Trent Jonathan Bryant Graham Hugh James Amelia our Julios this week thank you so much and Jeff that takes us to our new nerds the new nerds first off the rank today Dink Wingleman another fantastic name and and I like to think it's euphemistic as well oh you bowled a beanball and hit him straight in the Dink Wingleman it really (laughs) works out 435 is the number that Dink Wingleman has kindly sent us this week $4.35 what does 435 can't even say words mean to you Adam I, I didn't have a lot here, I, I must admit. James Faulkner being the 435th Australian men's test cricketer, it's just a mm. kind of a reminder that he'd played that, that test at the Oval uh, in 2013. And I guess there was all that pressure, wasn't there, but through the 13-14 Ashes series when George Bailey was batting at number six. The, the push was, why is Faulkner, who's got all this natural ability, not getting a chance to be Australia's all-rounder? Uh, we talked about Alan Davidson, of mm. course, before being the left arm quick and making all those runs. Well, you know, I think there was an expectation that Faulkner 
Walker might be able to do something similar to that at test level, having started his limited overs career so well. But it wasn't to be. He didn't get that second opportunity. And, and barring some uh, big pivot from here, I, I reckon he might end up being one of those one-test wonders, which is a shame because, yeah, he's got a lot of natural ability, but has really fallen off the radar in recent years and hasn't done himself any favours along the way. And then what happened at the same ground a couple of years later? Oh, yes, Peter Siddle, 4 for 35. That was uh, the comeback, the the 6 for 60 match figures or whatever it was uh, when he uh, had finally got an opportunity at the Oval. So uh, in the follow-on when England was stuffed and Australia won the last test in, uh, it was inside four days, wasn't it, Jeff? Uh, so we got the day off, uh, as we did every test in that series. The first seven mm-hmm. test matches I covered, which um, were the two in the West Indies, which exactly I, I took off for that trip five years ago today. I saw it in some Facebook back and forth that uh, um, I left for West Indies on my very first tour five years ago. A lot's happened since. But, yes, all five uh, test matches in that series, so in the West Indies followed by England, were finished in the space of four days. And here was I, as a freelancer, I'm thinking, what's the point in trying to get paid for five? You never get a start on the fifth day. But um, <laughs> Peter Siddle's bowling ensured that was wrapped up in four at the Oval. But I've got something for you, Adam, for 4.35. Uh, a okay. Little, a little treat. Now, listeners to the show might know that Adam Collins has never witnessed a test hat-trick <laughs> and that this burns... Deep within his soul, there is a there is a pain, there is an anger, uh, there is a resentment. There's there's the moment on the cross at Golgotha, the place of skulls, when Jesus Christ hangs on the cross and he says, "Oh Father, why hast thou forsaken me?" And and I think that's the way that Adam feels sometimes with the for someone who can tell you exactly how many test matches he has attended to the number off the mm. top of his head, and for mm. none of them to contain a test hat trick, I, I know it burns Adam. Yeah, it's just something missing. It's something that I, it, it's been lost so far. I think it's 120 mm. I'm up to now, and, and yeah, never having seen yep. a hat trick. It's and and it, as I've noted before, it's not just that I haven't seen one. It's how close I've been. I've been within a mm. day of seeing one on four or five occasions, but just luck hasn't gone my way, Jeff. But yep. I like where you're going. Please continue. So, one of the very few Australian Test matches you've missed in the last those five years: 2016 Sri Lanka in Gaul. <laughs> Rangan Herath <laughs> takes a hat trick. He knocks over Adam Voges, Peter Neville, and Mitchell Stark in consecutive deliveries. Yep. Um, I was there on Sri Lankan Broadcasting Corporation Radio having a, a very interesting time. In that spell, in that innings, Rangan Herath, four for 35, is what he took when he picked up the hat trick. As it happens, when I arrived in Sri Lanka to replace you on that tour, Jeff, I did the white ball games, the. the, the uh ODIs and the T20s, the first of the games that I was covering, I was doing for radio for the Sri Lankan Broadcasting Corporation and James Faulkner took a hat-trick and I was calling it. So, <laughs> to go kind of full circle on the 435, but not a, that doesn't count if it's not a test hat-trick. I've been lucky to commentate a couple of one-dayers, one at Lords with Trent Bolton and that the James Faulkner at, uh, where were we, Colombo and I've seen a couple of others mm. at 50 over level but just keep missing out uh, when, it, when it comes to the, uh, to the test stuff. Well, I'm going with that one, Dink Wingleman. I reckon 4 for 35 being the most recent hat-trick in an Australia-related test match that uh, Adam obviously didn't see. That's the 435 I'm going with. Thank you, Dink. Next on our list, Claire Daniel. Claire Daniel has come in with $5.02, 5.02. Now, I, uh, I looked around. There, there wasn't much in there. I was thinking of team scores. There wasn't much there. But So what I'm going with in this case, Adam, is... Isaac Vivian Alexander Richards batting average fifty point two five zero two. I think that works, and I think if you put it all together, 
that's where you could end up. Viv Richards with his 24 test hundreds, 8,500 test runs to go with another 6,500 plus in ODIs. Uh, I, I, Viv hasn't got that many mentions on Nerd Pledge, uh, surprisingly, but I, I'd like to give him one today. Well, it, it's funny that you, you mentioned Viv uh, for 502 and Claire Daniel, and that sounds spot on to me. I mean, you know, 50.2, 502, I, I like that a lot um, because I was also thinking about Viv for Andy Slee's number, which is 189. Mm. So 189 was for a long time, 189 not out to be precise, the highest score in one day internationals. So Viv made that at Old Trafford famously in 1984. He walloped England. Um, but it, it, having a look at the scorecard, um, it's a, it's better than the numbers suggest. So 189 off 170 balls unbeaten. But you look at the card, he was the only player in the top eight that day to make it in the double figures. It's, a, it's carnage <laughs> all around him. And he bats the whole way through the innings, as I say, for an unbeaten 189. So, I mean, it's kind of the definition of batting on a different planet, isn't it, that day? So that, that was my option for 189. I had a couple of mm. others there, including Sid Barnes taking 189 test wickets at 16, which was the world record. And, of course, Viv's was the world record. So I like the idea of via mm. Claire Daniels 502. We linked to Andy Slee's 189. And I think we've got sort of two via... Uh, Vivian Richards. I like that and, and I'm very happy to have that link. The other suggestion I had for 189 was Stan McCabe. Johannesburg mm. 1935, a, a glorious knock in the fourth innings of a test. Australia got set 399 to win and Stan McCabe tried to get them. They ended up drawing the match but he went after it 189 not out. They were 274 for two when they ran out of time. And the bit I particularly like about that test is that Clary Grimmett, Bill O'Reilly and Chuck Fleetwood Smith all played. They had three wrist spinners in oh, the wow. same test side. I would struggle to imagine a time when that has ever happened. Three frontline wrist spinners as the bowling yeah. attack. Yeah, that, that's right. It must be something about fourth innings chases in South Africa in the 30s. Of course, at Durban in, in 1939, England were well on their way to, to chasing 654, was it, Jeff, in, in the fourth innings when they had to jump on the boat and uh, get back to... It was actually jump on the train, wasn't it, before getting on the, the subsequent boat to get them back to England before World War II mm. uh, broke out. But, um, yes, yeah, so it looks as though, had this been a timeless test, Australia would have would have found their way to the 399 victory target as well. Of course, that's one of the, the trilogy of, of Stan McKay, great innings, the, uh, the, the body line century to, to, uh, at the SCG when he defiantly uh, took on Larwood and Vos when everyone else was falling around him. 232, uh, equally famously, uh, at Trent Bridge and, and then the 189 in South Africa. So, yeah, Stan McCabe, a great of his generation, but, yeah, three sort of standout innings. I, I, I like players that, that, that are a bit in that vein. So take Stuart Broad, for example, even though he, you could argue that for large chunks of his career, blew hot and cold, the days that he blew hot were absolutely match-winning and, and sort of series-defining. You think about the, the three times that he... Uh, won the Ashes mm. for England on home soil in, in 2009, 2013 and 2015 with three remarkable spells. The, the same is is the case for Stan McCabe. And uh, a further little note on the leg spinners, Clary Grimmett and Bill O'Reilly in that series, out of 98 wickets that fell, they took 71 of them. So they absolutely dominated <laughs> that five-tower series. And in Cape Town, Bill, Bill O'Reilly picked up four for 35. We were just Oy. discussing 435 nice, earlier. Jeff. There you Beautiful go. Uh, thank you to Andy Slee for that one and Claire Daniel before that. James Withers comes in with $4.16. Now, we talked about $4.16 actually on the last show because a couple of people had it and I didn't realise there were actually three who had it in my list and James was the third, so I'm uh, sorry for missing out, James, but I've got 
a suggestion for you which uh, which relates back to the last episode we talked a fair bit at the start of our last ep about the delivery that michael holding dismissed rodney hogg with in 1984 at the wacker and how mm. that related back to our magic number of 213 now in that match in 1984 at the wacker before that delivery happened the west indies made 416 in the first innings. Then they bowled out Australia twice, made them follow on after bowling them out for 76 and won by an innings. So 416, James Withers, I am voting, is the 416 that the Windies made in the first innings there where Larry Gomes and Jeff Dujon had a huge partnership. Jeff Dujon retired hurt on 35, then came back out at the fall of the next wicket um, and ended up on about 150 by the end of his innings. So pretty remarkable test match all round for the West Indies. Nicely done. Thank you, James Withers, for being part of the 416 Collective. And, and last, Jeff, but not least in today's segment, we have uh, 238, 238 from Mark and Nicholas Tucson. So another one, Jeff, where you've, you've, uh, you've got two people with the same number. So we're, we're, we're grouping mm. them together. And uh, Jeff, where did you get to on this? Well, I was looking at... <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot jumping out at me, but... Uh Mohammad Musa Khan, who debuted for Pakistan at the Adelaide Oval last summer, he was Pakistan's 238th Test match player, um, of course, took a wicket with a no ball first up and then had to fight back to to try to take a couple of wickets and get something out of his debut. So there might have been some sympathy for Musa Khan. Pop quiz, Jeff. Who are the two other bowlers who've taken their first wicket in Test cricket in Australia uh, in the last 10 years? only to have had it retrospectively taken back via a no-ball that was identified by the third umpire. Confident enough with this one, Nassim Shah, the other Pakistani teenage debutant in the match before Tick. that, and Tom yep. Curran at the MCG um, the oh, two fuck. years before. I've missed one. There's four then. Michael Beer, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Beer in, uh, at Sydney in, in 2010-11. Actually, and, and in that inning, I think that was... I think I'm right in saying that uh, the Michael Beer wicket was... Alistair Cook, who went on to make 189, which was Andy Slee's number before, so another link oh. back through. But yes, uh, boxes 238. Boxes. So 238 was Alan Donald's cap number. If you want to learn more about 213 and Alan Donald, of course, you can check out The Greatest Season Was, the semi-final spectacular oral history, which we released the other day. It's the thing I've worked on ever so much over the last 12 months or so. Jay Mueller talked about it off the top of the show uh, on the mm. weekly edition the other day, but uh, that's an option there. Uh, I want to free Alan Donald, um, by the way, Jeff, for what happened that day uh, at Edgebaston. It was not his fault for not running. It, it, no matter how many times you watch it back, he was correct mm. to wait until Mark Wars flick had passed the stumps before considering running because the ball before, he backed up when Darren Lehman had the chance to win the game and he was well short of his ground. So it was, I mean, as much as I love Lance Klusner and I really do, it was Klusner's fault for running, not, not Donald's for, for standing still. Mm. Alas, uh, that's not who I've got for 238 though. I've got for 238 England only because this came up uh, recently, uh, sort of. We had this, I can't remember what it was exactly, but the stumps score that England were on uh, the night before the Ben Stokes miracle was a nerd pledge number four or five weeks ago when Stokes was on, was it three not out, Jeff, before he went on to make his crazy two. century? Two not out. Off two off out. about 51 balls, I think. 51 balls, something like that. Well, at the lunch break on day four, so, you know, the last break in play before all hell breaks loose, England were 238 for four with Stokes and Bairstow at the wicket. And just to kind of, again, there's a number of ways you can illustrate how mad that middle session was that day, but one just looking at it then, England ended up, 
making five for 144 in 29.4 overs in that middle <laughs> session. So, I mean, you know, that's just bedlam, wasn't it? And uh, again, it was a yeah uh, one of those great things to witness. But another a nerd pledge number, which might relate to the Stokes Miracle, possibly there from uh, Mark and or Nicholas Tucson. How many first sessions have we watched where it's something like one for 52 in the first 30 <laughs> overs <laughs> and then you yeah. then you put out five for 144? So I'm yeah, going to say that yeah. Mark is uh, is feeling sorry for Mohamed Musa Khan and gave him a run and Nick Tewson, we're going with the Headingley score for you. So I think that's everybody that we've got on our list today. I think if it you is. Want to play Nerd Pledge, this is the crucial part. Uh, you can help keep the show going and you can play the game at the same time. You go to patreon.com slash the final word if you're spelling patron it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n there's an e in the middle for whatever reason Uh, you go there then you sign up and then you can choose your frequency you can choose your number and you can set us the challenge and and then you can drop us a line as well send us messages through that um, dashboard and we will be uh, easily contactable and we can try to work out what your uh, mystery might be yeah, and we love talking to everyone on Patreon through the DM function as well. I mean, this is, again, you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, Jeff, but it's become a really lovely part of the Patreon page. It's that we sort of back and forth with with uh, with members on there quite a lot through the week. So uh, jump on there. The, the link is in the show notes, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Thanks to everyone for jumping on board in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and Jeff, um, I think with that, we'll, we'll put a full stop on Nerd Pledge and on this segment. And after a quick breather, it'll be us last year with Isha Guha. As we take our quick break, it's time to remind you once again about our very good friends at Future Talent, the mob that make the sports cards that let you be the Gary Open brackets, Buddha, close brackets, hocking, or whatever it may be. <laughs> brackets? Why would it be brackets? Inverted commas, even, if you will. Yeah. The double inverted comma, that really that really powers up a nickname, doesn't it? So you can have that. You can be that. You can be on the card. You can have your face on the front or whatever other part of your body you want on the front of the card. You can have your description and your bio on the back of the card. You can make them for your sports team, for your kids, for your family, for your pets, whatever you might want to do. Uh, and they're a very nice gift to, to give to people who aren't expecting to get one because everybody has that nostalgic little twinge when they see a sports card and to have their face and name on it can mean something to people of a certain generation. That's beautifully set up, Jeff. And I, I think that if you've got your nickname on your footy card, you've gone well. And I was thinking about this during the week as far as nicknames go. And sadly, Stephen Fay, the wonderful cricket journalist and author, won the Cricket Book of the Year with the Cricket Writers Club a couple of years ago with his tome on, on John Arlott and, and Jim Swatton, the, the prize that Jeffy won the following year, actually, with Steve Smith's men. But um, he passed away last week. And the obituaries all had one thing in common. They identified him as Captain Claret, which is like an absolutely outstanding <laughs> nickname. Imagine um, your nickname, which is, you know, literally in your obituary is Captain Claret. So if we were making a sports card for Stephen Fay posthumously, which, look, maybe we will, it would have mm. Captain Claret on there in the inverted commas. I love that because I actually met him for the first time last year when I was in England because his book, mm. uh, he wrote that book with David Kiniston. Yep. And they were up for the prize for the Wisdom Book of the Year um, prize and they were also up for the mcc one so they were 
floating around in, in, in the same circles. And then we were both also nominated for the Telegraph Prize. So there were these three ones. I'd, I'd picked up the first two. And then I saw him at the dinner for the Telegraph Prize. We'd had a couple of good chats by this point. And, um, the, the, you know, Stephen Fay, he had a very jolly kind of appearance and the, the very flushed cheeks that went with the Captain Claret name. And it, he spotted me and I came up and we shook hands and he smiled very genially in this very English way. And he said, I would wish you good luck, but I hope you bloody well don't win this one as well. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. And so I was, de- I was delighted by the end of the night that he was called out to be the winner and got to go up and accept. So it was a, a lovely little moment to share with him over, over a couple of weeks there. Another competition that's going on at the moment is via Future Talent. So futuretalent.com.au forward slash competition. That's the place to go. And what they're doing, and this is fantastic, I reckon. So Heath and Emmanuel, who run Future Talent, they realise that at the moment, a lot of sports clubs out there are doing it tough. It's, it's not an easy time to run an organisation where you don't have sort of the canteen money or the bar money or, or whatever it is that, that you use to sort of fund the club's activities week to week, given that we've been in lockdown for a long period of time. So mindful of that, they're putting $300 worth of Future Talent cards on the table for any individual, but specifically looking at clubs. And if you were to win that prize, they can recognise your players or your members and as we've mentioned on the show before they're all individually made cards they've done more than 200,000 of them in the 10 years they've been in operation they've got a five-star rating from Google and from Facebook they're a brilliant little operation they've been going uh, Jeff for 10 years and you basically put your design in the website um, with all the, the pictures and biographical information and they come back with something quite brilliant so you know the idea at the moment is is that if you make them on the website you can have the image and share them on social media which is also a bit of fun so I encourage you to do that too at futuretalent.com.au forward slash competition and the winner as I say will pick up 300 bucks worth of their products and if you do want to get in there and, and buy the cards for your club and we said before that they're a great alternative to participation trophies that often just end up gathering dust and then end up in the in the recycling bin after a year or so whereas I'm pretty sure you, you'd hold on to a card like this a 15% discount so if you're a part of the final word family and you go to the price bar and put in the final word at purchase you'll automatically get 15% off and let Heath know that you know us and he'll definitely look after you go to futuretalent.com.au and uh, check them out. They're good eggs. Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Final Word. It's Isha Gua here with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And, Jeff, we have someone on the show today we have been talking about getting on as a guest for well over 12 months, and I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Isha Guha. She played 113 times for England uh, as an opening bowler, won a World Cup, a couple of Ashes series, which we'll get into as well. These days, she's commentating for Fox Sports, among many, many others. Isha, welcome to The Final Word. Great to be on the show, guys. Um, and, yeah, thanks for having me along. Love, love your work, and, yeah, great to be on. Uh, when doing the research for this, Ish, I mean, we know each other reasonably well and have known each other for a while now. I thought I knew a fair bit about you. I tell you what, you've done more things in 33 years than most people do in a lifetime. But the, the thing that stood out to me is that when Jeff and I were growing up in Australia, of course, we were watching Richie Benno on the television. And I reckon, Jeff, a lot of people our age wouldn't have necessarily known that Richie played 
test cricket or play cricket at all. He was such a mm. presence as a commentator that that's what he was defined by for, for so many people. And I think um, that may very well be the case for you as well at the moment, Isha, that people see you primarily as a commentator. Jeff, that, that's basically right, isn't it? People yeah, yeah I, I think so, because he was, there was a vague concept that, oh, he played in the crusty old days in some black and white <laughs> stuff. Um, but it wasn't really relevant to colour television. I mean, we don't really have that divide. But um, yeah, I suppose particularly for audiences in Australia where you've popped up leading the, the Fox broadcast, they wouldn't necessarily have a background to know who you were as a cricketer. No, I guess not. Um, and I always look back at my time playing cricket uh, and it feels like a complete eternity ago. I mean, I retired from England in 2012. So, yeah, it's a long time of not playing. And I pretty much haven't played that much, maybe three games since then. Including, it, like, novelty games, like the BBC game yeah. last year, for example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you stopped playing for England in 2012 after a 10-year career spanning ages 16 to 27, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, uh, 17. 17. Yeah, because basically there was this under-21 tournament the year before, which... I think people took as an England series, but it wasn't. So I, I actually officially made my debut at the age of seventeen. As a five foot tall fast bowler. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give myself a little bit more credit. Five foot one. Uh, five foot one. <laughs> so I mean, just to run through the numbers as, as we would be in cricket podcasts after all. And um, you took 101 one day international wickets at 23. You had a test average with the ball of 18.93. Um, as I said, you, you took the first wicket in the 2009 World Cup final at North Sydney. Um, actually, let's start there. The, the thrill of um, being a World Cup winner, and we saw England win the World Cup in 2017, and, and what a turning point that was for the women's game. But how often do you still think about being a part of that 11 that won the won the World Cup in 09? I think it's by far my best achievement um, on the cricket field. Just And it's not just the day. Uh, and, and a lot of people will speak about their best achievements as being a culmination of uh, so many years of really hard work. I mean, when I first started playing for England, it was, what, 2002. Mm. We were getting beaten by Australia left, right and centre consistently. Um, every now and then we'd beat New Zealand um, and we were starting to beat India a lot more. So, yeah, we, we weren't a great side um, and we had to really... We went on this incredible journey from from being pretty average to the best team in the world mm. and that's, that's the year. I mean, 2009, um, we won the World Cup. We went back home under a bit of pressure to perform at home. We ended up winning the World T20, yeah. whitewash the Aussies in a one-day series and retain the Ashes. I mean, there's, there's nothing more you can achieve after that. And it really was just something very, very special. And it was coming off the back of quite a grim time, as you suggested. I, I did an interview with Claire Connor where she spoke about this as well, this sort of hoodoo of just being completely unable to get past Australia until when the dam finally broke. Absolutely. And and I think the turning point was 2005. Um so I made my debut in '02, and I didn't actually play Australia till 2005 in, right. a, in a World Cup. And I, I remember Catherine was starting to play then as well. Um, so she made her debut, I think, around that time. And we both played Catherine against, Brand. yeah, Catherine Brunt. Yep. And we both played against Australia together. And you know, all all the older girls had told us stories about you know the great Catherine Fitzpatrick and Karen Rolton and Belinda Clark, and they just smashed the ball to all parts. And those would be the stories you came into the dressing room with mm. of, of just their complete and utter dominance. So straight away, you know, you, you had this kind of fear of the Aussies. But then, because I guess we had this kind of youthful exuberance, we never really played them before. We didn't have the weight of losing hanging over us i think we just really enjoyed we really enjoyed the challenge of it um and then later that summer we ended up beating them at stratford for the first time in 10 years in a one-day international and it was a bit of a a bitty summer because we had a test match at hove which we saved aaron brindle with a 
an incredible 100 to save the test match. Holly Colvin making her debut. Mm. And then we went to Stratford having lost two one-day internationals. So we had to win. And it was probably one of our best performances on the cricket field. And I remember significantly Claire Taylor and Laura Newton, Laura McLeod, yeah. smashing or hit, hitting Catherine Fitzpatrick down the ground for a few fours. And we were like, this has never happened before. So, yeah, that was that was a real turning point for and, us. And later in 2005, the Test match at Worcester, which sort of stands out as one of the high points of your career with the bat. Yeah. That, that sort of famous uh, partnership to win the Test match. Still my favourite time on the cricket field. I mean... You talk about World Cups and winning World Cups, yeah. but there's so much pressure associated with that. And we were, the, no one was expecting me and Catherine to, to bat for as long as we did. Where were you batting? I, I've, I've heard about I've, the partnership from you before, but where, where were you two in, in the order at the time? 10-11. Uh, 10-11, you put on 80-odd <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, it was amazing because obviously we, we were quite good friends, you know, we yeah, played yeah. cricket together. We just loved being out in the middle facing Catherine Fitzpatrick. I mean, it was towards the end of her career so her pace had dropped a little bit but she was steaming in all I remember Catherine talking about was the big left dog get your big left dog down <laughs> get, get it right out there and you know there were quite a few shots that went through the slips and, uh, it's a productive area yeah but it's amazing when you're not out overnight and we were sharing a room together as well so we were just full of excitement we just absolutely love the fact that we turned up at the ground in the morning and all the batters were giving us throwdowns we were like yeah yeah <laughs> we're going to be opening the batting today <laughs> and then you press fast forward four years and you're the number one ranked bowler in the world from 2008 to 2009 and then there's the barrel test match which again sort of stands out in your in your career record as, as a time when you literally won the Ashes for England like again it's, it's a this is big deal stuff it had been a difficult tour for me prior to that I'd been in and out the side right. I wasn't going to play and then Jenny Gunn was ill the day before so Mark Lane the coach at the time came up to me and said you're going to be playing tomorrow and you're going to be opening the bowling huh. so you weren't playing the test match where you took the 9 for 100 no and I remember him coming up to me after I'd been bowling at Lottie uh, Charlotte Edwards it was middle practice and I got really emotional because I was just so desperate to play in the test match and I knew that mm. I wasn't going to and then he came up to me afterwards and said you're going to be playing and I was just like overwhelmed we ended up bowling first the conditions were just perfectly suited for my bowling it was it was not an Australian day it was overcast the Bradman Oval is like one of my favourite grounds yep. not just because of that performance but because it's just there's something it has an aura about it obviously being associated to, to the legend himself but the white picket fence the greenery that surrounds it it's just got a really peaceful feel to it mm. and I remember a little bit nervous and ended up getting a wicket relatively early and then it was just one of those days where a lot of the greats in cricket have these days on a regular basis for us average cricketers <laughs> you have them maybe once or twice in your career and literally every single ball I bowled I felt like I was going to get a wicket and you know just little things like Claire Taylor would move herself from like second slip to gully and then a catch would go there like immediately and it'd be like what is going on it's just everything's coming together and then in, in the second innings as well it was I didn't want to be a one hit wonder I wanted to take wickets again and, and fortunately I was able to do that but it, you know it was, it was a sort of pitch where I could pitch the ball up and get the ball moving. You were playing through that pre-professional era and the stories you're telling, you know, there are little indicators in there. You talk about Aaron Brindle who retired early, Holly Colvin who retired and went to work for the ICC. You gave it up in your mid-twenties as well because it basically wasn't really sustainable to keep playing cricket when you couldn't make a living from it. From my point of view, it was a lot of different circumstances building up together. I mean, I, I had already kind of been playing for England for 10 years 
up until 26 so you know I'd already had quite a long career and been part of a very successful side been on that journey which again I, I feel very lucky to have been part of and we'd achieved everything as a team and th the only thing left really was to be a consistent form of do dominance a bit like the Aussies of the 90s right. and the West Indies prior to that so to just keep getting better as a cricketer around that sort of time in the year prior to that I was starting to be so I'd always been part of the squad but I'd been in and out of the team mm. which was fine and I could handle that absolutely fine and then sort of in the year leading up to me retiring I'd, I'd started being in and out of the squad so I was having to fight my way back in a couple of times which again I was happy to do because you know you, you just want to make yourself a better cricketer and then I actually off my own back went to India that winter prior to 2012 for six weeks and I spent a month in Calcutta staying at my grandparents place which was an incredible experience and I played at the and trained at the Calcutta Cricket and Football Club because I just wanted to get better and then I spent some time down in Pune at the Global Cricket School and that's when I realised that I should have done that when I was 18 mm. <laughs> and at the end of it I was like oh now I know what I need to do if I ever want to be the best cricketer I can possibly be and this is what it feels like to train 24-7 day in day out without any other the distractions because at the time I was starting my thesis and I just met Rich the summer before as well so mm -hmm. everything was kind of like coming together and the year before as well I'd had an opportunity with ITV which you know I'd, I'd never seen that as a career pathway for me initially but all, all these different things and I went to New Zealand and I remember I didn't feature in a game and I was like you know what I'm happy I feel really good with, with where I'm at I was bowling really well in the nets and I was like there were loads of really good young Chris's coming through give them enough chance to to get some experience before a world cup and I was ready to to do something different you mentioned the thesis you're writing that's just you're doing your PhD at the time and you talk us through the academia side and being a biochemist and how hard it was to kind of balance out being quite a serious cricketer or very serious cricketer and also being very serious about your studies and what you were doing which was so removed from it wasn't like you're doing sports science or doing something related to cricket this was a mile away yeah i i've always been quite indecisive <laughs> well when i was younger anyway so i i liked biology i liked chemistry yep didn't know which one i wanted to do but i knew that i wanted to be at a london university so, close towards, so basically do both ucl uh, allowed me to get the grades that i needed to do that course yeah. but also tr be able to train at lords so and play for berkshire still so <laughs> that was like part of that form part of my thinking um and then post that obviously 2009 won the world cup we'd done everything we possibly could do um as a team and that's when i started thinking about my future of you know what what am i going to do you know but i can't just be a cricketer so i just thought okay well I've decided I want to carry on playing. I want to get better as a cricketer. What's going to allow me to do that going forwards? And uh, my old flatmate, he was doing a PhD in neuroscience at King's and kind of gave me the idea to maybe try and do something like that, um, which allowed me to go to university. So I would go to Lords um, for about three hours in the morning and then I'd go to the lab at um, the Royal Free for the rest of the day. Mm. That, that's how how I plan my day and I was able to maintain it for a while but it did get quite long-winded after a while. I find that really interesting that, you know, reaching that point where you say, I, I think I've done enough, I think I've played cricket enough because it, it it's always amazed me how some cricketers keep going, you know, into their mid-30s, late-30s and, and I do think at times you know how can you stay interested for that long um, but then you do also see those players where the interest vanishes even someone like Mark Hussey who came into cricket late you know he got 
what, six or seven years out of that career and then said, I think that's enough. And mm. he, he could easily have played another couple of years. But, you know, reaching that point where you say, well, I've, I've achieved this. I've, I've played at the highest level for a long time. I've, I've achieved significant things. And, and if you don't have that drive to keep going, if you can't attach that to some future goal, then it must be very hard to... You're not going to have the motivation. It's not going to be real. You'd sort of be forcing yourself or going through the motions to keep doing. Absolutely. And I didn't want to do that. And when you're playing for your country, you become so consumed by wanting to be the best you can possibly be that you throw everything into it. And and that is your priority. Nothing else is a priority. And that can obviously have an effect on relationships. You're just so focused and in the zone and you're putting so much pressure on yourself as well. And that was just my decision. I was never one of these people that was 24-7 cricket. And I have a huge amount of admiration for those that can still find motivation after 20 30 years I mean those are the real greats of the game to be able to do it consistently for a long period of time Sachin Tendulkar Ricky Ponting mm. it's unbelievable some um, of those old fellas in county cricket who, yeah. you know Wilfred Rhodes <laughs> at 52 <laughs> or whatever it is still, still trembling and it down. is it's just I find that really fascinating but for, from my point of view I've always been someone who and, and this is something my parents instilled in me as a youngster dad always wanted to rather than have a big house he wanted to take us travelling and see the world and I've always been very passionate about lots of different things um, and experiences and life so it was a very difficult decision because I felt like I was letting the team down but I also knew that it was the right thing to do because I, I felt in a good place rather than being bitter and, and leaving in a, in a bad way mm. I was really happy with the decision I made I feel like we've now explained to the listeners that you had quite the career. Before going forward to what you've done since, I kind of want to go backwards and explain how you got to becoming a professional cricketer in an era where, where women's cricket wasn't on Broadway. It's not as though it is now when the, the revolution's being televised, as it were, like it was at the 2017 World Cup. You were much earlier than that, and you grew up in High Wycombe, so not far from London proper. Talk us through how you went from presumably being a kid watching it on television to, to playing club cricket and so on. My brother, seven years older than me, already playing at the local cricket club. He was playing lots of different sports. I basically just wanted to copy everything he did from the sports he played to the music he listened to. Right. So, you know, it was so cricket and tennis in the summer, badminton and hockey in the winter. And my parents were very encouraging. They wanted me to do lots of extracurricular activities. So, yeah, I started at the local cricket club at High Wycombe, which was five minutes down the road yep. my parents kind of first saw my interest when I used to try and chase after the ball when my brother was practicing in the back garden and we had quite a long and thin garden so it was perfect for uphill into the wind <laughs> <laughs> it was the classic story I mean you've heard it many times my brother got me out pretty cheaply and then I spent the rest of the evening bowling at him I can't remember who it was that suggested I went down to the local cricket club but there weren't any girls teams around at the time I think my dad was quite reluctant but my mum persuaded him as she so often did when, I, when we were younger and I look back at it now and I think actually it was quite significant because when you look at the bigger picture of why there aren't as many female Asians playing cricket at a higher level I work it backwards to okay what was my upbringing I was the only girl only girl first and foremost in a, in a boys team from an Indian descent uh, in a boys team full of English and boys from Pakistan descent so when you look at that from the outset culturally and from lots of different communities that could have been frowned upon mm. but because my parents never saw that as an issue no one else did and so it just became Isha's playing cricket rather than Isha's the only girl in a boys team yeah. you know and that just helped my confidence because you know at that age 
eight, nine, you're kind of learning all the skills at the same pace as the boys. Sometimes I like to think the girls learn quicker because they're listening. But um, <laughs> it's only when, you know, the guys get older, they become stronger, it becomes a lot harder. But yeah, that's that was kind of my grounding. And then, so badminton was probably my favourite sport but it was cricket that took me further. So I was already part of the England kind of development squads when I was 11, 12, mm-hmm. um, and playing with the adults at the age of 11. When you would have been four foot tall at that point. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Were you, a, were you a monster for LBWs? Was it all just skidding off the pitch? Pretty much, yeah. yeah that's, that's exactly what happened. And uh, your, your family emigrated from, from Calcutta. How old, like, was this well before you were born or around the time? Of, uh, in the 70s. In the 70s, and right. And b- before I get there, I, yeah. I have considered wearing stilettos when I bowled. <laughs> well, we spoke, to, we spoke to Joe Richardson the other night, who's, who's you know, relatively short. He was asked about you know, not being the typical big, strong, fast bowler. And he said, I, I don't like to think it's bad. It's just different. I'm just different. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, yeah, stilettos would, you, know, you, you wouldn't want to land Yeah, wrong. No, no. No, you might. You might have an issue with the groundsman <laughs> as well. Uh, so Paris came out in the 70s. So, yep. you know, obviously you come along a fair bit later than that. But you, you've always sort of been quite proud of your, of your heritage. Yep. Um, and that continues to today with your BBC podcast the Doosera. Just talk us through the, the, the pride in being a British Asian woman and, and the, the leadership role you played in that community. I think when, when I first played for England, it was actually quite a big deal and I remember having lots of interviews at the time saying, you're the first Indian to play for England mm-hmm. and I was almost embarrassed by it. At the time I was like, oh no, I don't want you to focus on that. I just want you to focus on, oh, I'm, I'm playing cricket for England. But only now have I kind of realised the importance of it and the importance of representation for young girls to be able to see someone who they can relate to playing at that level to aspire to be like that themselves so yes I am proud of my heritage you know I go back on a regular basis now and I'm very fortunate to do so with work so you know I can pop and see my grandparents but you know I have so much admiration and love for my family and and where they came from if I had time I'd be able to kind of tell you stories about Calcutta and where my grandparents came from but go for it (laughs) throughout India obviously it's a very vast country lots of different kind of sects if you like of religion so you have a lot of Punjabis in the north Gujarati sort of in the west and Bengalis over in the east and there are obviously many more than uh, than that but every kind of sect um, has their own god that they worship and different foods different kind of takes on tradition Bengalis were sort of known to to be quite creative so lots of musicians and poets and actors and actresses came from from that region you would have heard of Rabindranath Tagore so he's a prominent figure in that kind of world so that was the history with my family so my mum's mum so my grandma was a singer and my dad's dad was a film director that whole side of the family really really creative more so my mum's side all of her brothers and her one sister she's an artist brothers all sing and, and play music and it was very much one of those kind of households where everyone used to go and they'd be entertained and my grandma would be singing and my granddad now he's he's 95 <laughs> and he's still going and he's so proud of her music that he always plays it when we go back because he's deaf he, t- he turns it up like full volume and we literally <laughs> uh, 
our ears are bleeding but no it's 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 just a great place to be and i love going to see them but that's kind of filtered through my mum and how worldly she is the very open-minded my grandparents were um, on my mum's side and i unfortunately didn't get to meet my my dad's parents but they've always been really supportive of, of what i've done and at the time of partition in 47 mm. so they were living in what is now known as bangladesh so it became east pakistan and yeah. they had to move because of the hindu muslim divide so they took all all of their stuff all of their belongings and there was a lot of fighting going on between the hindus and the muslims so they basically migrated to calcutta and that's where they have they've had their property since 47 so yeah and they're still there now it's wonderful thanks for sharing that with yeah. us maybe it's, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, you ended up marrying a musician yeah. <laughs> yeah I guess it's always been part of the blood I always wanted to play the guitar but yeah. I just never had the time to kind of because it's something you need to practice every day and um, that's why I just leave that to Rich <laughs> well, a lot of other people probably wanted to play for England so. <laughs> yeah. but being tapped into that is a broader cultural um, connection in terms of in terms of art and creativity and so on does that help you have balance so that your life isn't just all sport all the time yeah absolutely and I think again that that's kind of something I've grown up with and I realized that during my career that actually I, I did need to do something else to just keep that balance in my life rather than just being all consumed by the, the cricket and when I did eventually retire I realized how much pressure and, and how much of a bubble I was actually in all of a sudden I was out of that and that summer I remember me and Rich traveled to Europe a lot and we went to loads of music festivals and it was like a really nice time. Now let's deal with this other side of your life the the media storm that you've been part of for the last now six years it, it's quite remarkable the volume of places you've worked for um, on television on radio presenting commentating cricket and the olympic games and many other things along the way um perhaps you can give us a sense of how it started where did this journey in the media begin for you i'd done a few little bits and pieces with sky and the bbc when i was playing and then this opportunity came about in 2011. I remember I got, I got a, a message on Twitter from ITV because there was no other way of getting hold of me, apparently. I did, had no idea what it was about. And I met Tony Pastor, who was the head of sport, who wanted someone to, to get involved with the IPL coverage in a couple of weeks. And their host at the time, Mandira Bedi, um, was pregnant. So initially, I thought they just wanted me as like a an analyst or just someone to come and talk about the cricket and then he dropped it on me that he needed a host <laughs> and I was like great amazing literally just tried to embrace everything put a smile on my face and was like I'm ready for the challenge no worries went in for a screen test did that and I was fortunate to be able to work with Matt Smith who obviously really experienced yep. broadcaster as a host on the show literally I look back at some of that in fact I, I don't look at it now but <laughs> some of that stuff was just horrendous when you look back at it it's you know I was really wooden I didn't know which camera to look at the only thing that got me through it was my cricket knowledge and and I knew what questions to ask so fortunately they asked me back and then on the back of that it kind of just took off really India came calling so Sony Max and their extra innings show which was a completely different style of show just pure entertainment I mean they had drums on set cheerleaders just expected to dance onto the stage it was just crazy <laughs> it's my kind of show yeah literally probably about 20% cricket chat right. so <laughs> then I got asked to do some presenting for India Sri Lanka so on one of their overseas tours which at the time I didn't realize how big it was I did it and that was the first time I'd worked without auto queue and again you know just a completely mind-boggling experience but that summer um, so 2012 I was doing a lot of commentary with BBC and Sky and and just from that I got the bug I never I never thought that it would be a career for me I just enjoyed the experiences and 
And then I realised that actually there were some more opportunities coming up. So it, it was just great to be able to get the experience in all the different aspects of broadcast, whether it be radio or TV, lead or summariser. Because when I first did some TV commentary, I had no idea what the difference was between a lead and a summariser. I mean, mm. I've been watching TV my whole life, cricket TV, and had no idea about that sort of thing. So, um, and I mean, I, I know you guys can appreciate it. It's It's a completely different beast. And then just getting used to different countries and how they like their commentary so england let it breathe go to india you need to pump it up a lot more be really excitable australia is probably a bit more banter involved um so yeah i was happy to get all those experiences it's a very steep learning curve though it's for you to just be suddenly thrown into that yeah absolutely but i guess when i look back at everything that i've done i generally have been thrown into all sorts of things and you may look silly initially but you you just see them as experiences and you're going to learn from them so i'm just glad i I had so many one thing that's interesting with you as a as a pure commentator let's use radio as the example is that you were a summariser and you became a ball by baller i mean you commentated your first test match as a ball by baller last year between england and india not many people make that switch. I know Jonathan Agnew did. He was a summariser for one year and became a ball-by-baller. But uh, like that's a, quite a remarkable achievement in itself to, to go from one to the other. And the thing that gave me the confidence to be able to do that was the opportunity I had with Triple M. So, right. again, that just came out of nowhere, that op- opportunity. I, I was coming to Australia. I just finished my thesis. I wanted to have a break and come and see my mates in Australia and, and literally just relax, go to the beach. And Triple M said, we'd really love you to be part of the coverage. You're basically here for the time that we, we've got the coverage. And I was like, awesome. I've never really done that much ball by ball, but I'll have a go. Yeah. <laughs> and it is very different because there were loads of adverts and there were three people on at one time. So you haven't got as much time to fill. But that was a good stepping stone to, to DMS. Right. In a way, did, did that help you pare down the task? Because literally, you've just got to describe the action in the most concise possible way and then let all the other sort of stuff come in around you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I discovered a new passion as well, you know, just I've always appreciated ball by ball commentators and how they describe things. Ali Mitchell does it incredibly well. Aggers, all the experienced ball by ballers, daggers. I I just love the way he describes a sky and the different colours of the sky and and Dan Allcross, who I've worked with. You know, it's so many different ways you can describe something. And I guess that's the creative side of of things coming through. But huge appreciation for for those guys. It's interesting to me that we've got you leading the Fox broadcast, Ali Mitchell leading the Seven broadcast. Not so much homegrown. There aren't Australian women doing those jobs. Yeah, and I, you know, Mel Jones is around and Lisa Stalaker, and I have a huge amount of respect for, for Mel Jones as a lead caller in the game, and she's been doing a lot. I guess what happened with Fox was I'd already worked with them a little bit and been over here with Australian broadcast with Triple M working on the test matches so that's how the opportunity with that came about yeah you know, it's it's interesting it's not it's not a critical thing but it, it seems like there have been more opportunities for women women broadcasters in England than there have been here to to get developed to get the experience to, yeah, to, to um, get that many games leading broadcasts and it's so on. but I would say only in England in the last year or so I think there was a reluctance to have females on male broadcasts in England in the past. And the only reason I've been able to get my experience is through opportunities in India and the West Indies. I'm working on CPL, working... So the CPL were actually the first T20 tournament to have a female on the broadcast before the IPL invited four of us to go over there. So Mm. there are plenty of talented female broadcasters around the world. But I've been really 
I've opened my eyes to a lot of um, female reporters as well with Fox. Um, Nerily Meadows, of course, everyone knows, who have got a, a love for cricket, who, if they just had more opportunities, there'd just be more, more and more across the broadcast. Um, I remember going to America a couple of years ago and I, I was really impressed by a lot of their female hosts and mm. you could see that they, they actually were pushing it a lot more. There were females on um, basketball coverage, on baseball. A star actually used me on a, a test series in 2014 on the India-England test series. So that was another step for them. But I, I now think there has been a real shift, certainly in England. And it feels that the IPL had a massive role in that as well. You talk about the four of you went over there and, and were calling uh, the, the IPL action a couple of summers ago and it generated a lot of attention. That must have been a wonderful thing to be part of in that year when, was it 2016, the year when you went over with Mel and, and Lisa and we were all calling at the same time? It was such a big shift from the IPL. Yeah, it was. And I think they recognised that they wanted representation and to attract more females to the coverage, which people who watch the IPL, it is a family show. Everyone gets home after work and they've got the IPL on straight away. It's become like a sitcom at home. You know, you have your heroes <laughs> and your villains. Um, and so, you know, probably wanted to hear some female voices and just that representation within the commentary box. It does feel a bit different, Adam, doesn't it? Like, the, the, it feels like we've reached a tipping point maybe in Australia very belatedly, but, um, you know, oh, you can actually have women on sports broadcasting and that's okay. Like, like uh, Nerily Meadows saying that she got teary when, when she heard Uesha calling, I think it was Pajara's 100 in Adelaide, and yeah. she was going, you know, here's, here's a, a woman's voice on TV calling a Test 100. And, yeah, it's bloody late and it's taken way too long, but it's happening. Yeah, it kind of comes back to our, our, our first talking point of this whole thing, Jeff. It's that if you're a an accomplished male cricketer it's a very conventional career path for you to go into the commentary box but that wasn't for women and, and that, that's how it's shifting isn't it it's the same goes for someone like Ali Mitchell who didn't play the game professionally but has been a broadcaster for 15 years covered cricket for the vast bulk of that and as a consequence she's getting those opportunities as well it's as though those barriers have been removed to an extent yeah and I'm a big one for, for representation um, I think it's really important to have a mix and a blend of, of journalists and people who have played the game yep because ultimately you're trying to represent the views of people who are tuning in. You can't just have one view all the time. You know, you have to have a plethora of different views. So I think that's what it, it does bring. Uh, and, and also just women watching the coverage going, here's someone who knows the game and it's something that I might be able to do in the future. So that's, that's what I love about it the most. Life's moving pretty quickly for you at the moment, Anisha. You're on the circuit. Have you had much of a chance to pause and take stock at where your priorities will be, you know, in order to not get burnt out within a couple of years of doing so much travel or so much calling? Yeah, I think, like anyone, you get to a point where you have a kind of wish list of, of how you would like your life to be balanced. <laughs> While the work's been going amazingly well, I've had some things going on at home, and uh, it's it kind of just offers that perspective to you. So you feel very pleased about what you're doing, um, but at the same time, there is that constant battle of knowing where your priorities are. It's something that I guess everyone goes through, you know, and you're constantly, life is about choices, isn't it? You're constantly making choices about what the right thing to do is. To be honest, at the end of it all, I look, I look back at everything and I say, I just, I feel very lucky and privileged to have done what I've done. And almost that moment of realising that the things we're doing covering a game, it doesn't matter. It's very nice and it's good that it's there, but it, it's not important in a way. I see the players sometimes and I just, I, th I think back to when I was in that bubble. I, I look at the amount of pressure that the guys are under at times, you know, 
not just out in the middle but social media everything like that and I, I just want to say to them don't worry it's okay because it isn't the be all and end all but you can see it you can see it in, in their eyes just how important this is to them which I guess you need to have at times to, to be the best in the world but it's I, I do feel it is important to get to gain some perspective every now and then and what do you think it looks like in say five years time to pick a to pick a year at random do you, do you do you feel as though your life will be roughly as it is now that is to say you'll be covering cricket um to the extent you are now and traveling and so forth or do you think you or will... does it become like the playing career where you go oh well I've, yeah. I've achieved these things now i can go and do something else or or, yeah. or, or do you go back and i mean you've, you've literally done a phd i mean do you, do you go back and uh, invest some time in 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 the area you've spent so much time studying and developing your skills yeah well that is something that really does interest me um for a couple of years now i've been looking at trying to combine the two so I'm, right. I'm fascinated by the brain and what happens in the brain, particularly in sports people, not, psych- not psychologically, just from a chemical point of view. Yeah. Um, and I think we're reaching a point where we have the tools now to actually research this and, and get the data on it to actually come to some conclusions because we probably only know about 5% about what goes on in our minds. Um, so that is something that I would be really interested in. But other than that, yeah, no, it's it's always been about trying to be the best you can be and you're always learning in everything you do. You guys are accomplished broadcast journalists, but even you will feel like you're you're still learning every time you do something so it's just a wonderful journey to be on really i'd love you to be able to balance the two so we could have the first doctor in australian broadcasting since dr turf uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we can find a way through i'm not sure whether dr turf's um title qualified a qualified in, doctor of grass in the, knows all in the about knows way. all about herbology uh, uh, Isha, that's that's probably a nice place to leave it it's such a joy traveling the world with you and uh, and seeing uh, you do these remarkable things over the last couple of years and thanks so much for being part of the final word thanks guys great to be on thank you this is the final word with adam collins and jeff lemon and again jeff thanks to isha guha who was a wonderful guest uh, we got plenty out of that conversation and we hope that you did as well yeah, and it's been nice to hear from people over the last few weeks who have been getting a lot out of the Encore editions. Of course, a lot of people started listening to this show around about a year ago and might not have caught up with all of the older interviews we have have done before that. So it's been encouraging to hear from people who've um, been pleased to hear from the likes of Ian Chappell and Glenn Maxwell and, uh, and now Isha Guo going around again. So stick with us on The Final Word next week. We have a big edition of the show on Monday or Tuesday. It'll be coming out, which is all about 12 months since the World Cup. So we'll have a bit of fun there and play a few shots, thinking about the the wonderful six weeks we had uh, covering that glorious tournament. Uh, As always, thanks to everyone who's part of The Final Word, from um, subscribers to those that review and rate us on iTunes, which makes a massive difference. If you haven't done that before and you can spend a couple of minutes just jumping on and um, pressing five stars and saying why you enjoy the show, that would be most appreciated. So our patrons, we talked about them during nerd pledge if you want to get a nerd pledge in it's very straightforward it's in the show notes click the link patreon.com forward slash the final word all our old episodes are at the website finalwordcricket.com to jay Mueller, to dave collins and astrid edwards at bad producer productions that keep us on the park week in week out jeff we could not do this without them and uh we couldn't we can't we won't we shall not we shan't but we shall keep doing the show into the future we'll see you next week i had to go about it write it out